Hello and welcome to Lunatics Library. I'm Abby Branker. I'm here with Alan Kudan. Hello. And today we have Grim Reaper stories for you. Stories of death. Stories of death, but not just stories of death, because that could be many stories. No, capital D. Yes. Stories of capital D death. Yeah. Yeah. If you miss the history of the Grim Reaper, check out the previous episode to this one, the one right before it. Uh, We go into the history of the Grim Reaper and all kinds of death gods and symbols of death throughout different cultures. And I got to say, like, it was kind of a long episode. And I feel like we only touched maybe 20% of the topic. Oh, my gosh. It's, uh, yeah. I feel like that happens with a lot of the topics we take on that it's like, we really scratch the surface with some of these things because they're so vast. I mean, I don't want to make any false promises. Okay. But I do feel like there's going to be a gods of death part two. That'd be cool. Yeah. We've talked about doing death rituals. Like there's all kinds of death topics we could tackle. Sure. We could do a whole death month. Death month. Death year. We could make a whole side podcast just about death. Called death radio hour death (laughs) yeah that's good lunatics death hour death by radio death by lunatics okay so today we have two stories for you the first is one i'm super excited about so john cook of the fado podcast who we're working on a bigger collaboration with sent in a story to us called the violin that he wrote and he also recorded himself and he has a wonderful reading voice. We've talked about Fado before, but it's a wonderful podcast of folklore and fiction, short stories. He does a really great job bringing them to life and, you know, the classics in, in some, to some degree, but sometimes, you know, it can be hard to like, especially in this modern era to be like, Oh, I'm going to go back and read some, you know, Poe or whatever. And he really makes it accessible and easy. And like I said, brings them to life in a beautiful way. So check out the Fado podcast. We'll leave a link below. But in the meantime, let us listen to John's story. The Violin Written and read by John C. Cook Frank Jenkins sat in his worn recliner beneath a bowl half-filled with potato chips. One hand laid across the teleview remote, and the other lay across the bowl's rim, his grease-slicked fingertips searching for a big one. This was a typical evening. Most nights, Frank had a beer or two, finished most of a bag of some greasy snack, and fell asleep there in the chair. Mindlessly, he tapped the channel button on his remote, advancing through dozens of programs before stopping on a commercial for a kitchen gadget. It was the kind of show that was only thirty minutes long, but that would loop for hours, and once you began watching it, it was difficult to pull yourself away. "'And, Barry, it's just that simple,' the well-groomed man in the polo said to an overly eager host. The host, Barry, was overcome." Now, wait a minute, Jeff. You're telling me that I can cut the amount of time it takes to steam my broccoli in half? The studio audience sounded dubious at the possibility, and Barry looked to them as if to agree that this was simply too good to be true. Honestly, Jeff, I'm going to need to see some proof. The crowd cheered. Frank smirked as Jeff proceeded to load broccoli into the Steam Dream 1500, much to the enjoyment of Barry and the crowd. 
He reached for his beer, only to realize that it was empty, and so placed his bowl on the scuffed wooden end table, then pressed the recliner to its upright position with his legs. He rose and walked to the kitchen, which had not seen a broccoli floret in some time, and opened the yellow-white chill box. Pulling a beer from a shelf and closing the door, Frank ambled back to his chair and sat down, twisting the cap free from his beverage and tossing it with some skill into a fishbowl, which was already nearly full of them. Frank slid the chair back and replaced the bowl on his lap, prepared to spend the rest of the evening there until he drifted off to sleep. Frank's eyes were closed, in fact, and he was already well on his way to slumber when the faintest small sound, at first like a gnat buzzing, caught his ear. Frank thought that was exactly what it was, but it immediately stayed too constant for too long. He opened his eyes and swatted at his ear, hoping that whatever the noise was would fly away and leave him alone, but his activity seemed to have no effect on the high, thin, reedy tone. The tone rose in pitch. It was too constant, and a little louder now. There was no way it was an insect— Frank sat forward a little bit, looking at the teleview, thinking that perhaps he had drifted off and that there was something on the screen that was playing with his hearing. No, Jeff still regaled Barry with tales of broccoli well steamed in half the time. It continued, and the volume rose. The pitch was lithe and sinuous, not exactly musical. It struck Frank at once that the sound was a violin, but it wasn't playing music. It was playing notes, but it didn't sound like anything he'd ever heard. Frank cocked his head and reached, fumbling for the remote and managing to put a finger to the power button by muscle memory alone, as he strained to hear the odd violin. The teleview screen went dark. Was someone playing it in the apartment above him? On the street? At once, the strange sliding strains became much louder— it was as if the sound was suddenly behind. Frank stood up with a start, the bowl of potato chips crashing to the floor and scattering on the already dirty carpet. He turned to face the kitchen and found himself face to face with a tall, blonde, slender man. He was dressed in a well-fitted black suit, covered over with a long black coat which stopped at the shin. Held beneath his chin was a dark-stained violin. The slender man's eyes didn't come up to meet Frank, but the violin's voice intensified. The pitch soared. Frank felt a numbness in his left arm and a kind of heaviness in his chest. The slender man never looked up, but kept playing his instrument. The winding and not-quite-melodious sounds seemed to surround Frank as he stood, stunned. A fire erupted in Frank's chest, sending tendrils of leaden, burning flame along his extremities. He grimaced, clutching a hand to his heart as he fell to his knees. The man played. Frank gasped and clawed at his shirt. The man played. Frank dropped to his hands and knees, coughing and gasping for the air that would not enter his lungs. The man played. Frank slumped to his side, and a slow, throaty breath escaped his mouth. The man played. Frank's chest fell once more, and his eyes glazed, remaining open. He lay there, unmoving, 
as the man's bow ceased its dance across the violin strings. He lowered his arms, bringing the instrument and bow to his sides, and stepped carefully across the vinyl floor onto the grimy carpet. The man knelt beside Frank. Apologies, he said, his voice tight and controlled, but you did have it coming. He stood and snapped a turn, walking quickly toward the wall that faced the street where he had begun the separation. As he reached the wall, the slender man in black vanished. Frank did not see him leave. Very spooky. Are you saying we're going to do more collaboration with this guy? Hell yeah. He's awesome. He's great, isn't he? How'd you meet him? Through Michael of Jollyville. It's it's always through Michael of Jollyville. <laughs> it really is. Michael is a wonderful uh, connector of people. But check out Fado Podcast. Check out Jollyville Radio. And, uh, of course, check out uh, Bob Shore Story Hour, which kind of rounds out our little podcasting group. Jo- John C. Cook has an awesome voice. I love his intonation. And just like he wrote, he wrote that, too. That's awesome. Yeah. What a, like, he, what a spooky story. He wrote it as flash fiction, which is kind of like he just sat down and wrote it one day. He he's a wonderful writer, and I'm really excited. I hope he, <laughs> I hope we can feature more stories of his on the podcast because it was awesome. I also like that the Grim Reaper was a musician. Yeah, isn't that cool? Beautiful, absolutely yeah. beautiful. A gr- little effective Grim Reaper story with both an E and an A. Yes, an effective and affective. Took me a second. <laughs> yes, yes. I was thinking about the E and the A of death, you know? Mm. I got sidetracked. Okay, so this is going to be our first time doing something we've talked about doing many times, which is reading a public domain story on the podcast. This is uncharted territory. Yes. I don't know how I feel about this. So the story is The Death of the Anku by Wyndham Lewis. And you'll remember from the history episode that the Anku is sort of like the Celtic precursor to the Grim Reaper. I just want to go on record to say that we're not trying to move in on on Bob Bob's turf. No, we're not. Or or John's turf, who both do a wonderful job sourcing and reading public domain stories. No, and I will say it's very hard to find uh, public domain short stories that fit the bill. So props to both of you, but they are the experts at, at this sort of format. So please go visit their shows. Was this one suggested to you? No, I found this one good old fashioned hard way. Quickly before we get into it, the author, Wyndham Lewis, was actually born Percy Wyndham Lewis, and later just known by his two latter names, was born on November 18th, 1882 in Nova Scotia, Canada. But this is the fun fact, Alan, that I wanted you to know about him. I thought his first name being Percy was the fun fact. No, he was actually born on his father's yacht off the coast of Nova Scotia, and I am fascinated at what a yacht in 1882 was like. That's an excellent point. 1882 is born on his dad's fancy yacht in Nova Scotia. Like was what? Was there 1882? 1882. Okay, so there's it's 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 a steamship. Uh-huh. Really? You think so? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, as opposed to like as opposed to what? Sailboat? Sure, but steam was early mid eighteen hundreds. So or eighteen eighty two, 
we're thinking. But did people have recreational steam-powered boats in 1882? That's a, you know, hey, Google, <laughs> did people have recreational steamships in 1882? Okay, so I just Googled 1882 yacht. <laughs> and uh, we've got, it looks like both. I see lots of images of beautiful sailboats, and I also see images of steam boats that are coming up definitely steam powered boats one specifically looks like uh you know like like it could be recreational actually which is kind of interesting but not a ton mostly i see most of what i see is uh sailboats that yeah i'm i'm thinking of just how in just a few years time you're gonna have like the massive ocean liners like the titanic you know hell yeah Sign me up. I mean, obviously, you'd need a full crew if you have a steamship. But I guess if you're sailing of any vessel that size, you're going to need a full crew. That's true. I mean, I think it wouldn't be that size, right? I think it's it was like a little, a smaller little version of that. I mean, it, it depends on how many masts or... One chimney. One chimney? Yeah. It's a, you know it, it's a single chimney? I saw that in the picture on Google. If it has a chimney, it's a freaking steamship. You know I'm saying I saw both I saw examples of both on Google. The ones I saw had one <laughs> chimney. The sailboats had multiple sails. Gotcha. So single boiler. Single boiler. One chimney. All right. Lou, let's let's get back on track here. Lewis grew up the author again, right? The author that was born on the yacht. Lewis grew up and was educated in the UK. He was a writer, painter, and critic. So now, let us hear his words on the Grim Reaper. The Death of the Odd Crew Written by Wyndham Lewis Read by Abby Ranger. I sat in a crowded inn at Van Devenek, in the Aragoat, not far from Rot, at the Pardon, deafened by the bitter scotch of the drinkers, finishing a piece of cheese. As I avoided the maggots, I read the history of Anku. That is the first Armorican death god, the guidebook to the antiquities, of a district made plain to the tourist, the ancient features of this belief. It recounted how the gaunt creature dispatched from the country of death traversed at night the Breton region. The peasant, late on the high road, and for the most part drunk, staggering home at midnight, felt around him suddenly the atmosphere of the shades. A strange cold penetrated his tissues. Authentic portions from the Niant pushed in like icy wedges within the mild air of the fields and isolated him from earth, while rapid hands seized his shoulders from behind and thrust him into the ditch. Then, crouching with his face against the ground, his eyes shut fast, he heard the hurrying wheels of the cart. Death passed with his assistance. As the complaint of the receding wheels died out, he would cross himself many times, rise from the ditch, and proceed with a terrified haste to his destination. There was a midnight mass at Plaumiliau, where the Anku, which stood in a chapel, was said to leave his place, pass amongst the kneeling congregation, and tap on the shoulders those he proposed to take quite soon. These were memories. The statue no longer stood there, even. It had been removed some time before by the priests, because it was an object of too much interest to local magicians. They interfered with it, 
and at last one impatient hag, disgusted at its feebleness after it had neglected to assist her in a deadly matter that she had on hand, introduced herself into the chapel one afternoon, and unobserved by the staff, painted it a pillar box red. This, she imagined, would invigorate it and make it full of new mischief. When the priest's eyes in due course fell upon the red god, he decided that it would not do, and he put it out of the way, where it could not be tampered with. So one of the last truly pagan images disappeared, wasting its curious effigy in a loft, dusted occasionally by an ecclesiastical bond. Such was the story of the last authentic plastic Anku. In ancient Brittany, the people claimed to be descended from the redoubtable god of death, but long passed out of the influence of that barbarity. The early death god, competing with gentler images, saw his altars fall one by one. In a semi-Parisian parish at last, the cult which had superseded him arrived in its turn at universal decline. The ultimate representative was relegated to a loft to save it from the contemptuous devotions of a disappointed sorceress. Alas for death, or rather for its descendants, thought I, a little romantically. That chill in the bone it brought was an ancient tonic. So long as it ran down the spine, the Breton soul would quick with memory. So, alas. But I had been reading after that, and immediately prior to my encounter, about the peasant in the ditch, also the blinding of the god. It was supposed, I learnt, that formerly the Anku had his eyesight. He had travelled along in his cart between the hedges. He would stare about him and spot likely people to the right and left. One evening, as his flat, black, Breton peasant's hat came rapidly along the road, as he straddled attentively bolt upright upon its jolting floor, a man in an adjoining field noticed his approach. The man broke into song. The scandal did not pass unnoticed by the touchy destroyer. He shouted at him over the hedge that for his insolence he had eight days to live, no more, which perhaps would teach him to sing, etc. St. Peter was there. St. Peter's record leaves little question that a suppressed communist of an advanced type is concealed beneath the archangelical robes. It is a questionable policy to employ such a man as doorkeeper, and many popular heirs in Latin countries fastidiously draw attention to the possibilities inherent in such a situation. In this case, Peter was scandalized at the behavior of the Anku. Are you not ashamed, strange god, to condemn a man in that way at his work? He exclaimed. It was the work that did it, as far as Peter was concerned. Also, it was his interference with work that brought his great misfortune to the Anku. St. Peter, so the guidebook said, was as touchy as a captain of industry or a demagogue on that point. Though how could poor death know that work of all things was sacred? Evidently, he would have quite different ideas as to the attributes of divinity, but he had to pay immediately for his blunder. The revolutionary archangel struck him blind on the spot, struck death blind, and true to his character, that of one at all costs anxious for the applause of the Much Dumbre. He returned to the field and told the astonished laborer, who was still singing, because in all probability he was a little soft in the head, that he had his personal guarantee of a very long and happy life, and that he, Peter, had punished death with blindness. At this the laborer, I dare say, gave a hoarse laugh, and St. Peter probably made his way back to the victim well satisfied in the reflection that he had won the favor of a vast mass of mortals. In the accounts of the guidebook, it was the dating, however, connected with the tapping of owls, the crowing of hens, the significant evolution of magpies, and especially the subsequent timetable involved in the lonely meetings with the plague-ridden death cart that seemed to me most effective. 
If the peasant were overtaken by the cart on the night road towards the morning, he must die within the month. If the encounter is in the young night, he may have anything up to two years still to live. It was easy to imagine all the calculations, indulged in by the distracted man after his evil meeting. I could hear his screaming voice, like those at the moment tearing at my ears as the groups of black-coated figures played some game of chance that maddened them. When he had crawled into the large carved cupboard that served him for a bed beside his wife, and how she would weigh this living, screaming man, in the scales of time provided by superstition, and how the death damp would hang about him till his head had expired. I was persuaded, finally, to go to Plaumiliao and see the last statue of the blind Anku. It was not many miles away, still to be seen for three pence, and while I was making plans for the necessary journey, My mind was powerfully haunted by that blind and hurrying apparition which had been so concrete there. It was a long room where I sat, like a gallery, except during a pardon it was not so popular. When I am reading something that interests me, the whole atmosphere is affected. If I look quickly up, I see things as though they are part of a dream. They are all penetrated by the particular medium I have drawn out of my mind. What I had last read on this occasion although my eyes at the moment were resting on the words Evronic Plowiao, was the account of how it affected the person's fate at what hour he met the Anku. The din and smoke in the dark and crowded gallery was lighted by weak electricity and a wet and lowering daylight beyond. Crowds of umbrellas moved past the door which opened onto the square. Whenever I grew attentive to my surroundings, the passionate movement of whirling and striking arms was visible at the tables where the play was in progress the Celtic screech meantime growing harsher and harsher, sharpening itself on caustic, snarling words, would soar to paroxysm of energy. Garse was the most frequent sound. All the voices would clamor for a movement together. It was a shattering noise in this dusky tunnel. I had stopped reading, as I have said, and lifted my eyes. It was then that I saw the Anku. With revulsed and misty eyes almost in front of me, an imperious figure, apparently armed with a club, was forcing its way insolently forward towards the door, its head up, an eloquently moving mouth hung in the air, as it seemed, for its possessor. It forced rudely aside everything in its path. Two men who were standing and talking to a seated one flew apart, struck by the club or the scepter of this king amongst afflictions. The progress of this embodied calamity was peculiarly straight. He did not deviate. He passed my table and I saw a small, highly colored face with waxed mustaches. But the terrible perquisite of the blind was there in the staring, milky eyeballs, and an expression of ascetic, ponderous importance weighted it so that mean as it was in reality, the mask was highly impressive. Also, from its bitter immunity and unquestioned right of way, and from the habit of wandering through the outer jungle of physical objects, It had the look that some small boy's face might acquire, prone to imagine himself a steamroller or sightless juggernaut. The blinded figure had burst into my daydream so unexpectedly and so pat that I was taken aback by this sudden close-up of so trite a tragedy. Where he had come was compact with an emotional medium emitted by me. In reality, it was a private scene, so that this overweening intruder might have been marching through my mind with his taut, convulsive step, club in hand, rather than merely traversing the eating room of a hotel after a privileged visit to the kitchen. Certainly at that moment my mind was lying open so much, or was so much exteriorized, 
that almost literally, as far as I was concerned, it was inside, not out, that this image forced its way, hence, perhaps, the strange effect. The impression was so strong that I felt for a moment that I had met the death god, a garbled version with waxed mustaches. It was noon. I said to myself that, as it was noon, that should give me twelve months more to live. I brushed aside the suggestion that day was not night, that I was not a Breton peasant, and that the beggar was probably not death. I had not shuddered. His attendant, a sad-faced child, rattled a lead mug under my nose. I put two sows in it. I had no doubt averted the omen, I reflected, with this bribe. The weather improved in the afternoon, as I was walking about with a fisherman I knew, who had come in twenty miles for this pardon. I saw the Anklu again, collecting pence. He was strolling now, making a leisurely harvest from the pockets of these religious crowds. His attitude was, however, peremptory. He called out hoarsely his requirements, and turned his empty eyes in the direction indicated by his acolyte, where he knew there was a group who had not paid. His clothes were smart, all in rich, black broadcloth and black velvet, with a ribboned hat. He entered into every door he found open, beating on it with his club-like stick. I did not notice any thank yous pass his lips. He appeared to snort when he had received what was due to him, and to turn away, his legs beginning to march mechanically like a man mildly shell-shocked. The fisherman and I both stood watching him. I laughed. Il ne say jean pas, I said. He does not beg. I don't call that a beggar. Indeed, you are right. That is Ludo, I was told. Who is Ludo, then? I asked. Ludo, the king of rot my friend laughed. The people round here spoil him. According to my idea, he's only a beggar. It's true he's blind, but he takes too much on himself. He spat. He's not the only beggar in the world. Indeed, he is not, I said. He drives off any other blind beggars that put their noses inside rot. You see this stick? He uses it. We saw him led up to a party who had not noticed his approach. He stood for a moment shouting, from stupidity, they did not respond at once, turning violently away. He dragged his attendant after him. He must not be kept waiting, I said. Ah, no, with Ludo, you must be nimble. The people he had left remained crestfallen and astonished. Where does he live, I asked. Well, he lives, I have been told, in a cave. On the road to Kermarker, that's where he lives. Where he banks, I can't tell you. Ludo approached us. He shouted in Breton. What is he saying? He is telling you to get ready, that he is coming, my friend said. He pulled out a few sows from his pocket and said, Fault bien, needs must, and laughed a little sheepishly. I emptied a handful of coppers into the mug. Ludo, I exclaimed, how are you? Are you well? He stood, his face in my direction, except for the eyes, his mask of an irritable jack-in-office, with the waxed mustaches of a small pretentious official. Very well, and you? Came back with unexpected rapidity. Not so bad, touching wood, I said. How is your wife? Jusue Garçon. I am a bachelor, he replied at once. So you are better off, old chap, I said. Women serve no good purpose for serious boys. You are right, said Ludo. Then he made a disgusting remark. We laughed. His face had not changed its expression. Did he try, I wondered, to picture the stranger, discharging remarks from empty blackness? Or had the voice outside become for him... Or had it always been what the picture is to us? If you had never seen any of the people you knew, but had only talked to them on the telephone, 
What under the circumstances would so-and-so be as the voice? I asked myself, instead of mainly a picture. How long have you been a beggar, Ludo? I asked. Long temps, he replied. I had been too fresh for this important beggar. He got in motion and passed on, shouting in Breton. The fisherman laughed and spat. Quell type, he said. When we were in Penang, no, it was Bangkok, at the time of my service with the fleet, I saw just such another. He was a blind sailor and Englishman. He had lost his sight in a shipwreck. He would not beg from the people. Why did he stop there? He liked the heat. He was a farceur. He had such another as this one. Two days later, I set out on foot for Karmakor. I remembered as I was going out of town that my friend had told me that Ludo's cave was somewhere. I asked a woman working in a field where it was. She directed me. I found him in a small, verdant enclosure, one end of it full of half-wild chickens, with a rocky bluff at one side, and a stream running in a bed of smooth boulders. A chimney struck out of the rock, and a black string of smoke wound out of it. Ludo sat at the mouth of his cave. A large dog rushed barking towards me at my approach. I looked up at a stone and threatened it. He looked at me with intelligence. Good morning, Ludo, I said. I am an Englishman. I met you at the pardon. Do you remember? I have come to visit you in passing. How are you? It's a fine day. Ah, it was you I met? I remember. You were with a fisherman from Kermanic. The same. So you are an Englishman? Yes. Tiens. I did not think he looked well. My sensation of mock superstition had passed. But although I was now familiar with Ludo, when I looked at his staring mask, I still experienced a faint reflection of my first impression, when he was the death god. The impression had been a strong one, and it was associated with superstition. So he was still a feeble death god. The bodies of a number of esculent frogs lay on the ground, from which the back legs had been cut. What is it you are doing them in? I asked him. White wine, he said. Are they the best that way? I asked. Why, that is a good way to do them, said Ludo. You don't eat frogs in England, do you? No, that is repugnant to us. I picked one up. You don't eat the bodies? Will you try one? asked Ludo. I've just had my meal, thank you all the same. I pulled out of my rucksack a flask of brandy. I have some eau de vie here, I said. Will you have a glass? I should be glad to, said Ludo. I sat down, and in a few minutes his meal was ready. He disposed of the granules with relish, and drank my health and my brandy, and I drank his. After the meal, Ludo sent the boy on some errand. The dog did not go with him. I offered Ludo a cigarette, which he refused. We sat in silence for some minutes. As I looked at him, I realized how the eyes mount guard over his face. The faces of the blind are hung there like a dead lantern. Blind people must feel on their skins our eyes upon them. But this sheet of flesh is so rashly stuck up in what must appear far outside their control, an object in a foreign world of sight. So in consequence of this divorce, their faces have the appearance of things that have been abandoned by the mind. What is his face to a blind man? Probably nothing more than an organ, an exposed part of the stomach. That is a mouth. Ludo's face, in any case, was blind. It looked like the blindest part of his body, and perhaps the deadest, from which all the functions of a living face had gone. As a result of his irrelevant external situation, it carried on its own life with the outer world. For after all to be lost outside is much the same as to be hidden in the dark within. I supposed that all the responsive machinery must be largely readjusted with them and directed to some other part of the body. I noticed that Ludo's hands, all of the movements of his limbs, were a surer indication of what he was thinking than his face. 
Still, the face registered something. It was a health chart, perhaps. He looked very ill, I thought, and by that I meant, of course, that his face did not look in good health. When I said, you do not look well, his hands moved nervously on the club. His face responded by taking on a sicklier shade. I'm ill, he said. What is it? I'm indisposed. Perhaps you've met the Anku. I said this thoughtlessly, probably because I had intended to ask him if he'd ever heard of the Anku or something like that. He did not say anything to this, but remained quite still, then stood up and shook himself and sat down again. He began rocking himself lightly from side to side. Who has been telling you about the Anku and all of those tales? He suddenly asked. Why, I was reading about it in a guidebook, as a matter of fact, the first time I saw you. You scared me for a moment. I thought you might be he. He did not reply to this, nor did he say anything, but his face assumed the expression I had noticed on it when I first saw it, as he had forced his way through the throngs at the inn. Do you think the weather will hold? I asked. He made no reply. I did not look at him. With anybody with a face you necessarily feel that they can see you, even if their blank eye proves the contrary, his fingers moved nervously on the handle of the stick. I felt that I had suddenly grown less popular. What had I done? I had mentioned an extinct god of death. I could not guess what had occurred to displease him. It was a good pardon, was it not, the other day? I said. There was no reply. I was not sure whether he had not perhaps moods in which, owing to his affliction, he had just entered into his shell and declined to hold intercourse with the outside. I sat smoking for five minutes. I coughed. He turned his head towards me. He placed his hand on his side and groaned. Is there something hurting you? I asked. He got up and exclaimed, Merde! Was that for me? I had the impression, as I glanced towards him to inquire, that his face expressed fear. Of what? Still holding his side, shuddering with an unsteady step, he went into his cave, the door of which he slammed. I got up. The dog growled as he lay before the door of the cave. I shouldered my rucksack. It was no longer a hospitable spot. I passed the midden on which the bodies of the Grenoli now lay went down the stream, and so left. I connected the change from cordiality to dislike as part of Ludo with the mention of the Anku. There seemed no other explanation, but why should that have affected him so much? Perhaps I had put myself in the position of the Anku, even unseen as I was, a foreigner, and so ultimately dangerous. By mentioning the Anku, with which he was so evidently familiar, he may even have retreated into his cave because he was afraid of me, or the poor devil was simply ill, Perhaps the frogs had upset him. I walked away. Later that summer, the fisherman I had been with at the pardon told me that Ludo was dead. Holy cannoli. Listen, <laughs> I tried my best, okay? I can't some, believe- there was some French in there, you know. I can't believe you just steamrolled through that entire thing in one take, no edits. <laughs> 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 the magic of editing <laughs> yes yes what a perfect your, read it was your french was superb i think there was some italian in there oh there's all kinds of things in there oh yeah i apologize to everybody literally of no, every no no you culture. don't need to apologize no, I am. for anything because that was perfect i also want to say that the story is a bit outdated in some ways and so no no not at all it has some universal themes that we've already discussed when death comes knocking, you get sad and hide. Sure, yeah. I mean, 
What did you think of the story itself? Once I got past the uh, language of antiquity, mm-hmm. that, that, that's being unfair. It's, you know, this was from what? Early 1927. 1927. So just, you know, anything from early 1900s, a lot of the stuff is a bit overly verbose. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I was surprised at how playful some of it was. You know, it was, I, I'm sure, like a, a better, you know, narrator could have really kind of brought that to life more but it the language itself was fairly playful it, it absolutely was and i think you did a wonderful job <laughs> thank you playing with it thank you thank you and letting it play with you <laughs> yeah it definitely got it, in th- my there head there was a lot of uh back and forth language fondling <laughs> oh geez yeah okay <laughs> language fondling lunatics radio hour so yeah definitely beyond all of that outdated in a few ways but uh, a story of the Anku and one from the early 1900s, which was, you know... On, on brand. On brand, but certainly uh, much after this would have been a thing, you know? Sure. So yeah. interesting that the style of it, I suppose, was interesting. Anyway, I guess that's it. I guess those are our Grim Reaper stories for you. Yeah, for, for now, because again, I'm smelling part two. <laughs> if you would like to submit a story that you've written or a public domain story that you're aware of... You can go to lunaticsproject.com and there's a submit button there for you. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. You can follow us at the Lunatics Project on social media or Lunatics Project, but on all social media, we are known as Lunatics Project. And until next time, goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content, consider supporting us on Patreon to access our patron-exclusive podcast, Horror Movie Club. Also head to lunaticsproject.com to check out our spooky merch and apparel. You can find us at Lunatics Project on Twitter and TikTok, and The Lunatics Project on Instagram and YouTube, where you'll find our short horror films, cemetery tours, and so much more. And please rate and review. A little feedback goes a long way to help us grow and get more content out there. Our cover art is by Pilar Kep and musical bumpers are by Michaela Papa and Jordan Moser.